Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. One of the big stories in local politics last year, of course, were those stunning results in the municipal election last October when you had uh, Doug McCallum come back. Yeah, this is like the greatest comeback since Lazarus. This guy comes back, he's the former mayor, and he becomes the mayor again. That was really amazing. And he, his council, Slate, the Safe Surrey Coalition, uh, did really well as well. I mean, they captured every single seat on council except for one. And remember what McCallum promised now? Now, he promised that SkyTrain for Surrey. He promised to get rid of the RCMP, bring in a local police force. But lately, some of the stuff from McCallum is just kind of, I don't know, weird, some of the stuff. Like when he's talking about building a canal or multicolored fountains in the city. Really? What is going on? What is McCallum smoking here? Have a listen to McCallum here. The idea came up that if we could find a street that's not used quite uh, quite as much, especially with people using their cars less um, down the road, that we could put in a, a type of me, um, wandering canal using the street, which is the land we own already, as far as um, maybe a, a canal-type thing through our city, um, ending up in basically our agricultural fields or in South Surrey. The canal-type thing for Surrey, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe this, this guy should have maybe bigger fish to fry in the city of Surrey than thinking about digging a canal through Surrey. Although, you know, I know my wife had mentioned to me maybe she would like me to take her to Venice and see the canals there. So you could be going down a gondola through Surrey, seeing the beautiful sights and having the gondolier sing Italian opera arias to you just like that. Yeah, I don't know if McCallum can hit those high notes like Pavarotti, but maybe that'd be kind of nice. Going down the canals and seeing the sights and Newton. I don't know, it could be a good idea. Other people, though, thinking, like, what is going on? Like, I noticed some of the other counselors there in Surrey kind of ducking for cover on this story. I know our own Janet Brown has been trying to uh, dig further into that story on the canal idea and is not getting a lot of those counselors want to say much at all now here's an interesting thing as well you got to stay tuned at the bottom of the hour i'm going to speak to diane watts the former mayor of surrey she's going to weigh in on this and what's going on in her in her old city and her old job and i'll tell you about another interesting decision that recently came out of surrey city hall that may surprise you but here's our hot question of the day so we're going to focus on mayor doug mccallum here now and his track record back on the job in the city of surrey and how you think he's doing there. Now, here's the hot question. Doug McCallum, he's been back on the job for eight months since winning last October's election. How is the Surrey mayor doing so far? Would you say, A, he's doing a good job, I approve of Doug McCallum's job performance so far, or would you say, B, bad job? I disapprove of the mayor's performance so far. Here's how you can vote on that today, at CKNW on Twitter. That's where you will find the hot question of the day. Please follow me while you are there, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, Mike Smith News on Twitter, and I will retweet the hot question of the day so you'll find it there too. Also, phone me on the buzz line today about that or anything you hear on the show. Leave me a voicemail. We may play it later, 604 604- 331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899. Let me know what you think about the performance of Doug McCallum as the mayor. Especially with people using their cars less um, down the road, that we could put in a, a type of wandering canal using the street, which is the land we own already, as far as um, maybe a, a canal-type thing through our city. That, of course, the, the voice of Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum speaking last week when he threw everyone for a loop with this idea to build a Venice or Amsterdam-style 
wandering canal through the city of Surrey. Surrey councillors, though, keeping quiet about this idea since it was floated on Thursday. The general manager of engineering uh, in the city says the originally said the mayor did not talk to him about this canal, which which. McCallum at one point said that he did, but then he clarified his position in an email later with our own uh, Janet Brown. Now, Janet talked to Simi about this this morning. She says McCallum's been working the back channels in the city, see if he can get this canal built. Here's here's Janet. I got an email from Jamie Bowen, the acting Uh general manager of engineering, and, and let me read it to you. He said, hi, Janet. I have now spoken with Mayor Doug McCallum and confirmed that he has staff uh, considering the idea of a canal at such time as we are developing waterfront plans along the Fraser River. The mayor noted that he is expressing an out-of-the-idea vision for the future, his idea for improvements along the Fraser waterfront uh, that would include a canal with adjacent walking areas. Okay, Janet Brown also told Simi Sarah this morning that the proposal to build the canal is raising eyebrows among some city councillors. First off the top, Councillor Annis, who's the lone opposition councillor uh, at Surrey City Hall, uh, she said she first learned about the mayor's idea on Twitter. Uh, then I spoke to Councillor Brenda Locke. She said the idea was impractical and unrealistic. When I put it to Councillor Jack Hundile, he started laughing and asked, does Surrey really need a canal? Okay, Jack Hundile and uh, Brenda Locker, members of uh, McCallum's party there, the Safe Surrey Coalition. Let's check in now with Diane Watts, the former mayor of Surrey. I'm very curious to see what she thinks about all this. Hi, Diane. Hi, how are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm great. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about this idea for a canal in Surrey? Well, there, there, we do have water features in many of our parks, and, and in the downtown plaza, we have um, water features there. But, however, looking at a canal from the Fraser River through Bridgeview, I mean, you've got floodplains, you've got a bog, you've got blue clay. Um, certainly, the area down there are portlands, and yeah. we've had a waterfront acquisition program in place, oh my gosh, since uh, the mid-90s in terms of, of acquiring land. And there's been work down there at, at the Brownsville uh, the Brownsville Park and, and in that area. But I, I think it would be a significant challenge to put a, a canal from Bridgeview down to South Surrey. Could be done, though, right? I mean, if you got enough money. I mean, they, they laughed at JFK, too, when he said, let's go to the moon, right? I mean, this, these things can be done if you got the bold, visionary leadership. Well, I think first and foremost, you have to look at what does a city need. And right now, we uh, we need police. And we yeah. need to make sure that we have a robust public safety program in place. And the policing agencies have the tools that they need. And when we look at our population, a third of our population is under the age of, of 19. We need to make sure that we're building sporting fields, not um, ending those programs and uh, you know putting the money elsewhere. So I think it's a it's, it's what we need to do in terms of priority. Yeah, I thought you were going to say there for a second. We need to build sporting fields instead of a canal. I mean, do you think like there <laughs> there are higher yeah. priorities for the mayor right now? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. as we know, the uh, Cloverdale Arena was uh, uh, no pun intended put on ice, and yeah. uh, but we we need a we need an arena, and and the kids need to have sporting facilities, and that program needs to to continue moving forward. So, um, you know, that's not to say that you can't have ideas and look at how we can right. improve a city, but I think yeah, also have to be practical. Okay, speaking to former Surrey Mayor Diane Watts, uh, speaking of the police, as you mentioned, that the, the city recently came out with their transition report on how to achieve a McCallum's promised uh, transition away from the RCMP to a municipal police force. This report is now in the hands of a BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. We're still awaiting a decision on him whether the province is going to green light this this plan. Now, this pl- this pl- plan's been out in the in the public now for a little while. What are your uh, thoughts on it? Well, I think there's some significant issues. Uh, in the plan, it states that you've got to, I mean, as, as of, of April 1st, 2021, the contract uh, with the RTMP is finished. You've got to hire uh, a number of, uh, a number of uh, recruits. And they, you know, it says in the report that about 400. And then there's 338 police officers that will um, have to be hired 
after the transition plan. So you're short. You're short 338 police officers as of April 1st, 2021. So there's there's some gaping holes. Uh, and, and as well, I mean, you're going to, you know, the, the initiative out there to pay the RCMP to um, move over to the Surrey Police Department. Well, they're already doing the job. Um, you think they so should keep? The, you think they should keep the RCMP? You know, I think there needs to be a proper process in place, and you have to first identify what is it that you're trying to fix, and do the police have the proper uh, the proper tools in order to carry out their function and make sure that. Surrey is well taken care of. Okay, kind of dodging my question there a little bit, though. I mean, should we keep the RCMP? Oh, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that process will determine whether you have have the RCMP, you stay with the RCMP, or you go to a city police force. So um, you can't go to the end result without identifying what the issues are and without having some critical thinking around the costing and how that's going to happen and what you're trying to fix. Okay, let me ask you about another strange decision, I think, that has recently come out of Surrey City Hall, and this is around the Surrey Good Citizen of the Year Award, which has been awarded every year to a deserving citizen in, in Surrey for many, many years, including back when you were mayor. So there's, I'm looking at a letter here that was released by the city clerk, and it said that we regret to inform you a recipient will not be selected for the Good Citizen of the Year Award in 2019 in Surrey. Uh, Council has requested that staff conduct a review of the award policy and provide options, including a set of criteria for selecting the recipient of this award. Um, I've got a a request in this morning to the City of Surrey asking for clarification on, on this. I have not heard back yet. You, you've obvi- I know you've heard about this. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's very disheartening. Um, you know, there is criteria in place right now. That award has been given out to deserving citizens since 1978. And uh, we've had some amazing people that have been on this list. Um, you know, Bill Reed, who's no longer with us, Bob McMurray, 50 years of, you know, in the arts community. We've had Rick, uh, you know, Rick Hart. We've had Deb Jack. We've had Bob Na- McNamara, actually, of a retired fire chief. Yeah. He just recently passed. We've had people that have dedicated decades of, of work and volunteerism to the city to make it a better place to live. And I think it really... Um, it really is disheartening to all the volunteers that are out there because yeah. they want to be appreciated. They want to, you know, be valued. And and honestly, people can give so much in their life, and the most precious thing that people can give is their time. And that has to be acknowledged. And so I'm, I know that there's a lot of people that are very disheartened, and as am I. Um, I think that it's it's really incumbent upon the city to really recognize people that contribute so much for so long. When you go down, I just went on the City of Surrey website this morning, and I looked down the list, Diana, of past recipients of this award, the Surrey Good Citizen of the Year, and the people who are honored are really extraordinary people. Like last year is a man named James Good. Who, yeah. And you look down his list of all the volunteer work he does on with the food bank, um, different organizations, the housing, the housing society in Surrey. I mean, it just, the list just goes on and on and on if this guy gives his time. I mean, these people, volunteers like that are kind of the heart and soul of a community. And I think it's yeah, kind of a lost, a lost opportunity to recognize them if they're not going to hand out this award this year for some weird reason. Yeah, and I would agree with you 100%. Absolutely, because every single person on that list has made... Uh, contra- uh, a huge contribution to the community. They've changed life, lives, and and most certainly they've changed uh, the way the city is. And you know, you look at Mike Wilson, another recipient. I mean, how many lives has he changed in his work with uh, recovery and addiction and? Mm making sure that, that, you know, the education programs are there, that the work training is there, and social enterprise is there. Like, it's, yeah. it's a lifetime of work and volunteerism. So it is, it is disheartening for sure. And I hope 
that um, next year that they will, uh, you know, bring it forward again. But like I said, I mean, the criteria is already there. If they wanted to change it, then they should have looked at it, you know, a few months ago. But um, most certainly there's, there's many, many deserving people. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, that is Diane Watts. She is the former mayor of Surrey, weighing in on some of the current situ- uh, events in the city. Shark finning is particularly damaging because about a quarter of the world's sharks today face uh, threats of extinction. The practice is simply not sustainable, and it is inhumane. That was the voice of Federal Oceans and Fisheries Minister Jonathan Wilkinson speaking to reporters after the federal government uh, became, uh, Canada became the first G20 country in the world to ban the import and export of shark fins, of course, a key ingredient in shark fin soup. Uh, The government taking action here, a lot of environmentalists and animal rights activists very, very happy about that, including my next guest, Camille Labchuk. She is an animal rights lawyer. She's executive director of Animal Justice. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Camille. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks a lot for coming on. So let's talk about this this ban on shark fins. Your thoughts? Well, it's been a very long time coming, and I'm just delighted that we finally got to this day. I, I first got involved in the issue back in 2011 when Toronto banned shark fin products in the city of Toronto. That ban was overturned by the court later. Uh, Then there was a bill back in 2013 to ban shark fins nationally that failed by only six votes. So it was so close and so heartbreaking. But sometimes these issues just take a little bit more time. And now we've finally seen uh, a lot of activity, members of all parties supporting it, and the government actually making sure that it got across the finish line before the end of the parliamentary session. Okay, what's the deal with shark fin soup anyway? Like, I've read that... You know, it's not it's not necessarily like a great tasting soup, but it might be more of like a status symbol that would be served at a, like an Asian uh, wedding or something like that. Is that true? That's right. So it doesn't have a strong flavor. It's flavored by yeah. other ingredients in the soup, but it does create sort of a gelatinous texture that's seen as a status symbol. So oftentimes at weddings or high-end banquets, it would be served and primarily in, in Chinese communities. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's What's interesting about this is that it, as the sort of affluence of, of many Chinese communities in, in the country, in Hong Kong, and the diaspora around the world, as it increased in the late 2000s, so too did the prominence of shark fin soup. So it got to the point where shark finning was reaching sort of an apex at the end of the 2000s. And that's where we started to see films like Shark Water come out to talk about why we need to make changes. Right. And shark finning is the practice of like catching a shark, cutting off its fin, and then just throwing the shark back in the ocean alive, right? I mean, people may have seen videos of this. It's absolutely disgusting. Oh, it's heartbreaking. It, yeah. it's, just, it's just totally brutal. They they uh, starve at the bottom of the ocean. They can't swim. They can't feed themselves. They can't do anything. And it's uh, a really horrible way for any animal to die. And it's yeah. also decimating populations. Many shark populations are at risk of extinction. Yeah, because when you're, uh, the shark finning practice, I mean, do they would they target a particular species of shark or is like any shark will do or what? Uh, I think that they will go after a, a lot of different sharks with uh, with the market for finning. Yeah. And there's also heartbreaking footage out there of roofs that are covered in shark fins that are drying. They've been sliced mm. off the sharks already, and they're just um, you know hundreds of square meters full of shark fins just drying. And you think of the lives that that represents and how many sharks suffered and died for that, and it's a horrible thought. Okay, were, was this happening in Canadian waters, or is this primarily like shark fins that are brought into the country or or with or was there any shark finning going on in in canadian waters well shark finning has been banned in canada since 1994 actually which is positive uh there is still a shark fishery especially in bc there's a dogfish shark fishery they don't slice the fins off of sharks so they're not supposed to while they're still alive so it's a little bit different but they're they're still targeting sharks so that's uh still a problem i would say but uh, the problem with just having a domestic shark finning ban, of course, is that imports and exports were still permitted. And Canada actually became the largest importer of shark fin outside of Asia up until this bill was passed. We were accepting, wow. um, I think it was 135,000 kilograms of shark fin last year with a value of over $3 million. So it's really important that we've shut off the trade. 
Wow. Okay. So that may be bigger than people think. Like I think when people first hear about this, they might think it's a very kind of, I don't know, marginal kind of practice, but I don't know. Some of the numbers I've looked at this morning show that it was actually pretty, pretty big trade. The numbers are pretty big. That's, that's right. And I think one positive thing about this is that it, the practice is on its way out, yeah. especially with the younger generation of uh, people, especially in the Chinese community. We've seen a lot of them driving the calls for change and campaigning against shark fin soup. So the Toronto shark fin ban, when it passed, was um, co-presented by Kristen Wong Tam, a Chinese-Canadian counselor in Toronto. There's a, a, an amazing activist in the Vancouver area named Claudia Lee, who herself is Chinese, and learned about shark finning and dedicated her time and energy to, to fighting the ban. So it's a practice that's already on its way out, and now we've got a law making sure that that is the case. Okay, you mentioned uh, a documentary film called Shark Water uh, by a filmmaker named Rob Stewart, and a lot of people look at that film. Uh, this guy's a Canadian biologist and filmmaker who uh, did this film about the plight of sharks ar- around the world. How much uh, impact do you think th- that film had? I think the film was frankly just instrumental in exposing to the world about shark finning. I, I had no idea about the practice before that film came out. A lot of other people didn't either. And he got just incredible footage showing how brutal the shark finning industry is, but also how amazing sharks are as animals. We have this perception that they're scary. People have seen jaws and they're terrified of sharks on that basis. But sharks are actually very, very uh, low risk to humans. They're, they're quite interesting, intelligent species, and they're often quite friendly to swim and dive with. So I think the benefit of that film was, A, sensitizing people to these amazing animals that sharks are, and B, showing them how brutal the industry is. But it's definitely been a huge driver behind all these political actions. Okay, speaking to Camille Labchuk, she's an uh, animal justice lawyer. Camille, the federal government also passing some new laws this week, cracking down on animal cruelty and bestiality. Are you, are you kidding me? Like, I, I'm, almost, I'm almost hesitant to ask you this question, but how, uh, how much of a problem is bestiality? Like, tell me this is not a big deal. Not a big problem. I wish we didn't have to talk about this. Mike. Yeah. It's Ugh. horrible to contemplate. Yeah. Um, really, the ick factor is there, and of course, yeah, it's just horrible. But oh. uh, three years ago this month, actually, a Supreme Court decision came out that said that most types of sexual abuse of animals are not illegal because our animal cruelty laws are so old and so outdated. So unfortunately, we were in this position where the federal government had to do something to close this really disturbing loophole. And it took them quite a while to get their act together. I I will say that. But they eventually did bring legislation forward last fall that closes the bestiality loophole and makes sure that all sexual abuse of animals is illegal. So that's a good move. Okay, this is not a big problem, though, is it? Please tell me it's not. Or do we even it's know? It's really difficult to know. This yeah. is the type of abuse that happens underground. Animals uh-huh. can't report abuse themselves. They yeah. they can't just call the police and say, I've been assaulted. So in practice, the only time it comes to light is if somebody makes a video or takes photographs and those uh-huh. are discovered somehow. So it's, it's, we don't even know how prevalent it is. But what we do know is that there are significantly sized online communities dedicated to discussing these things, to trading animals, to doing all sorts of horrible stuff. So I think uh, we need more awareness around this for sure, and and these laws are a good first step. Yeah, okay. Another one uh, of the law passed this week is legislation prohibiting promoting or profiting from fighting or baiting animals. Is this like dog fighting or... This is another one I hope you're going to tell me this is not a big deal in our country. Oh, I wish I could say otherwise, really? but unfortunately it's happening. It's it's Again, it's one of those issues that's underground. Most of us don't have any engagement with this, but... There are underground dogfighting, cockfighting rings. Um, apparently, there's in the lower mainland, in uh, B.C. especially, there's, there's cockfighting rings, people training these animals and shipping them abroad to other countries for fights. Uh, the, the BCSPCA testified at the Senate committee the other week about this and said that they're aware of two cockfighting facilities in the lower mainland that they've had a difficult time prosecuting because of the laws that were previously too weak. So I'm hopeful wow. that these new provisions are going to be a strong new tool. Camille, thank you for coming on. Always good to be here, Mike. Thank I, you. I appreciate it. That is Camille Labchuk. She is an animal rights lawyer. She is the executive director of Animal Justice. 114-110. Curry lets it fly. Canada, the NBA title is yours. 
birthday. That, of course, will go down as one of the more famous sound bites in Canadian sports history, the Toronto Raptors winning their first NBA title. But what happened moments later is a concern now for Masai Ujiri, the president and general manager of the Raptors. As you may have heard, Ujiri got into an altercation with a police officer at the end of that game as he was trying to get onto the court to celebrate with his players. The Alameda County Sheriff's Department's lawyer has said the officer didn't know who Ujiri was. They did not have proper ID to get on in the court, they say, and that Ujiri delivered, quote, an unprovoked hit to the jaw of the police deputy, causing the officer a concussion. The Raptors and Ujiri now face some serious legal issues here over this, but what really happened? Let's talk to Robin Doolittle now, the very fine investigative reporter for the Globe and Mail who has been digging into this story. Robin, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Robin, I know you've been talking to witnesses down there and a really excellent article in the paper today. What have you, what have you found out? So, uh, you know, uh, this is something that I've been following for the last couple of days, and I was astonished at how uh, little had been reported on, on people who had witnessed this. There was you know, like 20,000 people in that arena with, with video cameras, and a lot of them captured the altercation, and there's a video immediately after the shoving match that happened between uh, Masai and this, this sheriff's deputy. Um, so what the witnesses I spoke to, I wanted to know what happened right before, and the big question has been, did this sheriff know who Masai was? And uh, the police have suggested that this, this guy did not know who Masai was, and that this was um, a, a situation where Masai didn't have the right credentials. They had no idea who he was. What are they supposed to do? And right. uh, I spoke with one witness who was, says he was, you know, feet away from this happening, and he saw Masai pull out credentials, say something to the officer, and that people were shouting that's the general manager of the Toronto Raptors at the sheriff. And then when I went to the sheriff's office to actually comment on that, that point, they acknowledged that the body cam footage um, does show Masai saying, I'm the president of the Raptors and holding up his credentials. Now, they were apparently credentials that didn't give him clearance to the floor, which is one of the big questions that's come out of the story. Okay, so you got multiple witnesses there saying that he did produce ID, but maybe it wasn't the proper ID. Is that what this comes down to, perhaps? Yeah, it, it's a really this is a really messy part of the story, and unfortunately, until the the Raptors and the NBA and the Warriors and Oracle Arena kind of openly talk about it, it's going to be difficult to sort through. But it looks like Masai is holding a red badge with a lanyard. And what was needed to gain access to the floor is a purple badge and a yellow armband. The Raptors, because they were in a, a, a what's called a clinch situation, where they're, they're possibly going to win this title, would have been given these two uh, very limited items beforehand to distribute to their organization and individuals that they want to have on the court in the event of a win. And so... The question is, did the Raptors not give it to him? If he had it, where were they? Why wasn't he wearing them? And then there's the other element that, uh, I mean, there's two more elements, but one is if you look at the video on the floor after the win, it's not like everyone's wearing a yellow arm badge. So why are some people on there or not? And then the big question, which is what I really wanted to know, was, okay, even if he didn't have the right credentials, this is the president of the Raptors, this is the guy who assembled this team. His team has just had this historic victory. And if you know it's him, why wouldn't you try to like go like, okay, these are the rules, but you know, I'm going to go talk to somebody. We're going to figure out how to get you on here. But what, what seems to happen is that the officer just would not let him by, right. shoved him, and then the side shoved him back. And that's when everything kind of blew up. And Lowry, uh, Kyle Lowry, the Raptors, is, is the one that kind of eventually grabs Masai and pulls him on the court. Okay, it, it also seems that the Alameda County Sheriff's Department there seems to be making quite a, a, a big deal about this with their lawyers saying that there was a hit to the jaw, that the officer was injured and disabled and suffered a concussion. But I don't know, that also seems a little fishy, Robin. It's, it's been interesting to watch your tweets here in the last 24 hours and some of the reactions on it, like one reporter tweeting back to you saying that she heard a different 
story from the cops down there the day after who said the officer was fine? I mean, are, do the, are the police kind of changing their story on this at all? The police have been very challenging to deal with, I can say, like trying to pin down exactly what's happened. Um, for example, the first time that we spoke to them, they didn't mention that Masai identified himself. It was only after we had a witness saying, well, a witness says that there was an attempt to identify himself, that they acknowledged that. Um, the police service has said that Masai, initially, that he punched the officer in the face. Yeah. And then, as witnesses have said, that they de- definitely didn't see him do that. They saw him shove him. Um, so the officers are still kind of maintaining that he connected with the face. But they're kind of hedging a bit that it was too close fists and that they connected with the lower part of his jaw. Uh, ultimately, we want to see security footage, but they haven't released that. Um, on the shove front, yes, lots of speculation. Like, the officer is claiming he has a concussion, he has a serious jaw injury, and he's off work on disability now or disabled because he can't work because he's so injured and has suggested he's going to file a lawsuit against Masai, the Raptors, possibly the NBA. Um, in addition, there's this criminal investigation going on. Um, the police, what I thought was interesting yesterday, acknowledged to me that the officer did shove Masai first. He said, you know, if we're talking numbers, I'd say it was like a five. But Masai came back with a 10. So he shoved the officer much harder. Um, But a five out of 10 is still significant as well to me. Um, If that's, you know, kind of the the level of, you can imagine in the moment, Masai trying to get on the court, being blocked, officer shoves him. And witnesses that I spoke to said there were several shoves and put points of contact between the deputy and Masai before Masai pushed him back. Okay, Robin, last question for you. Where, where does this go from here now? I mean, there, there are multiple options here, I guess, potentially for the, uh, the district attorney down in California to a- approve a, a potentially a charge against Masai or Masai Ujiri, or maybe this, this police officer, like you said, potentially sues him in, in civil court. But with some of the confusion around this, do you get any sort of sense that maybe the uh, officials down there might back off on this and we can just write it down as a misunderstanding? What do you think is going to happen? I think that's been a big question all along is like, why wasn't this just chalked up as a misunderstanding from the very beginning in the heat of the moment? Um, I I have no idea. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't want to speculate, but what we do know is in the United States, unlike in Canada, District attorneys um, make decisions about charges, and district attorneys are elected officials. So they have political considerations. I I don't know which way this could play for them. Like, that might make you more likely to charge someone if you're saying, since the officer is claiming he's seriously injured, um, that might make you more likely. On the other hand, there's a racial element to all of this. You know, the NDA is predominantly made up of, of black players. Masai is, is one of the few high-ranking executives in the NBA who isn't white. Um, so people are questioning, you know, if he had been a, a white basketball president in a $5,000 suit trying to make his way onto the court and people were shouting, that's the president of, you know, the Warriors, would he have been stopped? Um, so I don't know, maybe look, on that political element, that might have an influence, but we just really don't know. And then there's also the question of whether he's going to be charged with a misdemeanor offense or a felony. And if it's a felony, that could potentially restrict his access to traveling to the United States. So it's a wow. huge mess. And in, in that sense, it's not super surprising that you're seeing not a lot of comments coming from the Raptors or the NBA at this time. Robin, great job on the story. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. 
for taking the time to talk about it today. Thank you. Bye. Okay, you're welcome. That is Robin Doolittle, very fine investigative reporter there at the Globe and Mail. Highly recommend the story that she broke on this today. Let's talk about how much money governments in Canada are making from legal marijuana. The numbers are in for five and a half months. $186 million. That's how much money in tax revenue all levels of government collected from legal cannabis from last October through to the end of March. Let's dig a little deeper into these numbers now with my guest, Robin Gibbard, economist at the Conference Board of Canada. Robin, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if that's perhaps lower than they expected to collect. Well, $186 million, obviously, it must be said, is more than $0. So in that sense, it's good news. But uh, this number actually came in quite a bit lower than I think governments were expecting before legalization. Um, so uh, I guess that makes it interesting. Does that mean because the taxes are too low or maybe they're too high and people are still buying off the black market? How do you analyze it? I wouldn't be too pessimistic about these numbers yet because it is still early days. Yeah. And we did see a number of significant issues with the rollout of legal uh, cannabis. I mean, supply problems all across the country. The legal market has got a lot higher price on its cannabis than the black market. You know, there's a shortage of brick and mortar stores in a lot of provinces. And then, of course, things like edibles are still not legal. Okay, how much is the tax on, on legal weed? It's, essentially, it's $1 per gram uh, or right. 10% of the price if the price is above $10 a gram. Okay. So it's not a particularly high price compared to what we see in some other jurisdictions around the world. Um, and I think the reason that they set the tax at that level is because they were conscious that if they made the legal product too expensive, people would just continue using, you know, their existing black market suppliers and, you know, you know then you'd get nothing. Right. Yeah. I remember listening to Finance Minister Bill Morneau make that point that they wanted to make sure they found the sweet spot for the, this tax rate because they don't want to tax too heavily and drive the market underground, which is they're trying to eliminate by, by legalizing marijuana in the first place. I've read there are some other jurisdictions that have made that mistake. I've heard some people say in California, for example, uh, the taxation on legal marijuana is high and they've collected a, a lot less money than they thought. In some jurisdictions in the states, you see tax rates as high as almost 40 percent, so that's a lot higher than what we have in Canada. And uh, yeah, like you say, um, you know, they just haven't been able to attract uh, consumers off of the black market. Here in Canada, uh, according to Statistics Canada, in the first three months of 2019, we still had about 73% of people buying their cannabis from the black market. Right. You know, we've gone from a 0% buying legal to uh, about 27% buying legal, but there's still a long way to go on that front. Yeah, I'm just taking a look at some Statistics Canada numbers now on the current prices for marijuana in the country. And as you mentioned, about about $10 a gram for legal uh, marijuana, but an average of $6.37 a gram for black market product, which is, uh, I guess, significantly lower. So do you think they've found the right sweet spot here on this tax rate, given you can get much cheaper illegal weed? To me, you've just highlighted, I think, the biggest challenge facing uh, the legal market, right? You know, there's, there's certainly going to be some consumers who want to buy legal at any cost. But I think a lot of people would, you know, maybe think twice about spending 50% more uh, to buy the same product. Now, yeah. uh, that $10, about $1 of that is taxes. So even if they were to take out all, uh, you know, all taxes, um, it would still only be $9. So uh, there's other things that uh, that are going into that that legal price of uh, uh, being so much higher. Some of it has to do with the um, you know pretty strict regulations that uh, Health Canada has around producers. Some of it has to do with the, the strict regulations that they have around the the, um, the stores that are selling it. You know these are things that um, they're going to have to continue trying to, uh, to to find the right balance on, and right. it is a balance that they have to strike. They don't want to make they don't want to make um, you know this product too available or, or, or too attractive because they want to make sure to keep it out of the hands of, of kids and, and they don't want people to become regular users. So it's a fine line that they have to walk. And I think, uh, uh, you know, they're still trying to find the right path. Okay. Speaking of Robin Gibbard, Conference Board of Canada about marijuana taxes. Do you think that you mentioned that, you know, this is not a time for the industry, the legal industry to be worried or panicked if, if uh, the, the tax revenue that's been collected is lower than expected. Uh, do you think that as the legal industry gets on its feet and becomes more developed that more and more people will turn to a legal product because they like the quality of the stores or the quality of the product they can go to yeah absolutely 
I mean, in um, in Ontario, where we're located, we still don't even have uh, physical brick-and-mortar stores selling cannabis. It's all still online. So, you know, when stores become available in people's neighborhoods, that'll be one factor that might drive them to consume legal. Uh, I want to point out that uh, there's still a number of categories of cannabis, cannabis products that aren't legal. So edibles, uh, topical solutions, these things will be legalized later this year. And um, uh, our friends over at Deloitte recently had a report that estimated the market for edibles is worth uh, $2.7 billion a year. So that's a huge wow. market that uh, right now can only be served on the black market. And so, you know, as time goes on, I think it's, it's only natural that we'll see these revenues uh, start to climb pretty rapidly. Okay, it's an interesting kind of balancing act for government as they try to figure this out because I recall that there's a there there's still a pretty uh, healthy black market for illegal tobacco cigarettes and you know you had federal governments really really heavily tax cigarettes which a lot of people would think is is a good public policy I guess to discourage tobacco use but you also potentially encourage people to buy under the, under the table black market tobacco right so you got to get it right that's exactly the balance that they have to strike. Um, you know, taxes on, on cannabis are lower than they are for tobacco. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, certainly if you, if you, if you don't get the, if you don't hit that right balance, uh, there's no doubt that you can, um, you can, you can drive people away from the legal product. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate it a lot. That's Robin Gibbard. He's an economist with the Conference Board of Canada. Let's talk about the latest major data breach in Canada. This one is huge. The Desjardins Group, they are a financial institution based in Quebec. They say the personal information of more than 2.9 million of its members have been shared with individuals outside of that organization now i guess the good news for us here in british columbia is this is a financial institution credit unions based in quebec so it probably hopefully does not affect you but when you consider how commonplace this is becoming i mean it's almost just routine that these huge data breaches seem to happen over and over again this one massive 2.9 million people some of the information includes names dates of birth social insurance numbers addresses phone numbers email addresses details about banking habits now the company is saying some of the most sensitive information of their members including passwords and security questions personal id numbers were not compromised in this breach but there's an investigation going on to see how this happened. Let's check in now with Dominic Vogel, now chief strategist with Cyber.sc. That's a cybersecurity company. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Dominic. Hello, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. This is, seems like, you know, here we go around the mulberry bush again. It seems like these just seem to happen over and over again, and the scale of these breaches are huge. How did this one happen? Do we know? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's early on. It's hard to get actual facts. I mean, one of the good things here is that it wasn't, um, an external hacker or some sort of malicious entity, which was trying to actively gain access to this data and, and use it for nefarious purposes. This was what we, I like to refer to as an accidental insider <laughs> threat where someone, I guess, accidentally accessed some information and sometimes when people just hit reply all to an email and include the wrong attachment, um, that's when stuff like this can happen. So uh, at least it's an accidental data exposure more so than an active data breach. So it does lessen the risk somewhat, but it, it's, still, um, it's still not a good thing. <laughs> okay, it's, it's pretty amazing to think that an accidental breach could release this much information, though, of 2.9 million people. I mean, the, the head of this company seemed very angry at a news conference earlier today that this this had happened. But I, I guess, like you say, maybe it's better that it it's uh, it wasn't the result of an, an external cyber attack. But what does it say about this company's uh, security regimen that something like this could happen, even accidentally? Well, I, I yeah, absolutely. And I think this is um, something which uh, a lot of organi organizations, big and small, uh, are grappling with, in which, yeah. um, especially in financial institutions, uh, they're acquiring and, and dealing with so much personal information that uh, most of these companies uh, have a great deal of difficulty controlling the access to that sense of information. So what you have is you have some organizations where <laughs> just, uh, a lot of individuals will have 
what I'll, I'll refer to as God access to all the information. Uh, and that's, that's part of the, the ongoing problem is that uh, companies uh, are still really struggling to really define uh, the access levels of controls to control that data. Um, you know, whoever that individual was who was fired, again, we don't know what the... Um, what the sort of the conditions were, whether that was accidental or if they were trying to do something malicious, that's still not clear. Um, personally, the way I would like to see a CEO respond is by, rather than assigning blame within the organization, uh, that needs to fall on the shoulders of CEOs and, and boards. Ultimately, the buck should stop with them. Uh, I'm yeah. not a big fan of CEOs who blame data breaches on someone internally. Yeah, right. I mean, here you got this CEO saying like, oh, it's just some underling in, in the company, and oh, I'm so mad that this has happened, but... Man, I mean, for the people, imagine if you were doing business with this uh, credit union and you find out that your personal information had been breached. Now, this company is saying, well, the most sensitive data was not compromised. So he's saying that, well, there were no passwords uh, that were lost. There were no security questions or personal ID numbers that were compromised. But they are saying that it does include uh, personal information like names, dates of births, addresses, social insurance numbers. I mean, can that kind of information be used to defraud someone oh absolutely especially something like a social insurance number which is used as a common uh, um, sort of authenticator a way of verifying who you are um, you know it, it's it's definitely uh, a significant exposure uh, again you know where that data ended up and who would it end up with um, you know that'll change sort of the, the overall risk of the of the breach but um, like I said the fact that that could happen and happen on such a wide scale uh, again, to me, demonstrates that many organizations still struggle uh, with uh, the sort of data assets. And I like to say that data assets are toxic. It, it's like nuclear waste. You need to be super, super careful with how you deal with nuclear waste. Your data, your most sensitive data assets should be treated no differently. And um, to me, uh, there's eerie similarities to what happened with Equifax, in which the Equifax CEO came out, the first thing out of his mouth was blaming someone internally. After a few weeks went on, we saw that the major problem was that there were systemic uh, problems internally and that cybersecurity and data security were not taken seriously. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if something similar happened there. When these types of situations happen, it's because there's systemic failures within the organization. Yeah, I, I'm suspicious, too. I mean, when I hear, like, he's trying to, it's almost like you're trying to scape, scapegoat some underling in the company but it, you got to wonder if there are bigger problems than this and and when he says too, like oh don't worry we haven't been breached of any passwords uh it's just sort of less sensitive personal information that's been lost but then in the same breath he says if anyone is defrauded or anyone suffers any losses uh, as a result of this they they will be reimbursed which to me is almost a tacit admission that the, this breach is is potentially more costly uh, to the people involved in this Quebec credit union than than they're letting than they're letting on. For for sure, and and, and to me, something which we often uh, uh, coach our uh, our clients on is the importance of you know having a breach is one thing, but how you respond yeah. to it can often be even more important. And to me, the uh, fact number one of how to respond to a data breach is to stick to the facts, say what you know clearly state what you don't know and how you're going about trying to solve that um, and you know when to expect further updates uh, you know there's still there's still way too much gray area and uh, far too many assumptions I think which which the CEO was was making there and to me it was it it smelled a little too much of corporate spin um, yeah. I, like I said it, 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 it in their response so far I would say is less than stellar um, it, yeah. it really uh, I, I think in this day and age especially when we're having data breaches data day in and day out, uh, one of the most important, I think, differentiators for businesses moving forward is not necessarily whether or not you have a breach. Companies will, will have breaches. That, that's the no, new, new norm now. What the key piece is, is how you respond to that and how uh, you deal with your clients and your customers. So I think that will be a key piece. And at least early on, I think Desjardins is, is fumbling the ball there. Yeah, I agree with you. Dominic Vogel is my guest. He's the chief strategist at Cyber.sc. Uh, they're a cybersecurity company that works with businesses to protect them from cyber threats and, and attacks. And we're talking about the latest data breach in Canada. 2.9 million members of this Quebec uh, credit union chain, Desjardins Group and Quebec uh, Information Compromise. I guess the good news for the rest of the country, for listeners here in British Columbia, Dominic, is maybe this doesn't affect them if this is concentrated in uh, in Quebec. But 
I don't know. I mean, are, are you starting to get angry about stuff like this? Like, you know, I'm getting like deja vu every time one of these happens. I'm thinking back to the the Marriott Hotel breach uh, that we saw last year. And is it is it time? Do you think to start hope, holding these companies more accountable for the information they hold on people? Yeah, no. I, uh, I mean, a, a couple things there. I think on on, a, on a, at least from a BC perspective, I know yeah. the. Uh, the brick. Um, if you need, you need to pay, you know, use the um, you know their options to pay monthly or or what have you. That's rooted through Desjardins. Oh, uh, so um, there there is there there could be a uh, a significant BC exposure into those oh. numbers as well. Oh no. Uh, so- so that's 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 worth considering for yeah. for your for your viewers and your and your listeners. Um, on the other side, in terms of you know if, if it's pissing me off, um, <laughs> yeah, to to me, I think what really bothers me is the fact that I'm, I'm worried that we're going to become desensitized as a society to what act, actually we mean by a data breach. You know, people hear it and it, to them it's like okay, there's another accident. You know, who, who cares? You know, what, what should we be doing? Kind of thing. And uh, I think that's the greatest danger that is as a society uh, that we don't hold uh, these corporations accountable. Uh, I, I truly believe uh, what's going to ultimately be required for uh, significant change is very similar to what Ralph Nader did in the U.S. with consumer advocacy for car safety. Um, up until the you know late, early, late 80s, early 90s, no one gave a damn about car safety. People were dying left, right, and center on the roads uh, until cons- the consumer advocacy uh, uh, charge led the way for greater advancements in car safety. Now, you fast forward to, to, uh, to today, when you watch a car commercial, what often what are they talking about it's not how fast the car is or how many cup holders it has the thing they talk about today is safety how safe it is right exactly so yeah. it's gonna, i think it's going to require that level of consumer advocacy as like as a society we need to take that step forward and ultimately uh, hopefully you know we follow a, a similar model in which some years in the future hopefully it won't take 20 or 30 more years but hopefully some point soon that that that's one of the ways which we gauge um, uh, the, our trust in organizations is how secure uh, they are in terms of uh, dealing with and storing our most uh, what, sensitive data. What can individual consumers do to make that happen? I mean, can you ask questions of the companies you're doing business with? What are your security protocols around my personal information? Or is that just too too deep a dive for, for most people? Yeah, into. you know, it, 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 it's it's really a tough, you know, that, that's a tough piece. And, you know, it often comes down to, you know, who, who you're dealing with at an organization and or, or potential business. And if you ask, you know, someone at, at a client experience level, you know, how do you guys handle data security? You're often wet, met with an um and an ah, uh, or, oh, you know, we, we have banking grade encryption. And it's like, well, what the hell does that mean? And um, you're, you're often not going to get um, um, a useful answer. I think one of the most important things that we can do individually is make sure that at all levels of government uh, that we let our MLAs, our MPs, our local politicians know that at both the public and private sector, that this is an important thing that we want to see change. We need to see greater oversight. You know, so we're, we're seeing elements of that from a privacy level. We're seeing elements of that in terms of mandatory data breach notifications. I think we need to keep pressing down and going down that road of greater uh, government oversight because ultimately that's the only way, uh, at least from a private sector perspective, that organizations are going to are going to change. You know, back to the, the car safety analogy, there were greater oversight. There was more um, laws and regulations passed. Uh, in U.S. Congress and then adopted by countries across the world in terms of car safety. I think we're going right. to have to go down a similar trajectory. Dominic, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Have a good one. I appreciate it. Thank you. Dominic Vogel, he is the chief strategist, Cyber.sc. That's a cybersecurity company. Uh, talking about the latest data breach in Canada, 2.9 million records uh, lost or, or divulged from the Desjardins Group in Quebec.